This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you so much to Renata and Andrew Caldor for hosting this amazing event and for having me here today. I'm going to focus on the Global Compact on Migration. I hang out uh, in my workplace with a lot of people who spend their lives on social media. So I've come up with my own hashtag for my presentation today. It's called No Time for Cynicism. Okay? This is a cynicism-free zone. Why is that? Well, I guess my starting point on this came working on uh, human trafficking, migrant smuggling, slavery, uh, sex industry, all sorts of things over many, many years ago, and discovering that, okay, so we have conventions on waterfowl. I'll give you that's important. We have conventions on outer space. Again, important. I've negotiated carriage of goods by sea treaties. We don't have a treaty on migration. That absolutely blows my mind in today's modern day world where I know that sometimes in my, in my role in my life, I'm fortunate enough to go through immigration clearance probably three times in a month. So I'm one of the lucky ones. So, you know, I'm seeing the, the good end of the system. And even all of us, every time we want to go to a country, I don't know about you, but I still have to go to embassies and fill in paper forms. Can you imagine if the taxi system operated like that? We'd replace it. We'd get Uber. So, who am I? I'm not an academic. I work for an organisation called the Walk Free Foundation. Um, we were set up in 2012 by uh, Andrew and Nicola Forrest, who may be known to some of you as um, the founders of Fortescue Metals Group, uh, which is a big for fourth largest mining uh, iron ore company in the world. Uh, through their very generous donation, they have created this organisation called the Walk Free Foundation, which focuses exclusively on the idea of modern slavery. We have a number of different arms to our organisation. And just quickly to explain who I am, uh, I head up the Global Slavery Index, so that's the research part of the organisation. But we also have something called the Global Freedom Network, where a couple of years ago, uh, the Pope, uh, the Holy Father in the Vatican, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Islamic leaders, Jewish leaders came together at the Vatican to sign a declaration of commitment to work on this issue of modern day slavery. We also um, seed funded the Global Fund to End uh, Modern Slavery in the United States, and we're one of the primary funders of the Global, uh, sorry, the Freedom Fund. So as you can see, uh, we're pretty serious about tackling this issue from all sides, research, funding, advocacy, um, and faith. So again, cynicism-free zone, why is that? Well, the second reason I draw to your attention is we all spend our day seeing too many examples of policy failure. And I'm just gonna show one of these to you now if I can make it work. Big 
strong voice for farm work, he said. 400. 700. 700. 800. The numbers roll in. These men are sold for 1,200 Lydian pounds. $400 apiece. You are watching an auction of human beings. Another man, claiming to be a buyer. Off camera, someone asks, what happened to the ones from Niger? So that footage is fairly recent. Um, it's from Libya. It's been verified. It's been backed up by subsequent videos um, showing the same thing of literally slave auctions of migrants. Um, these particular ones were from Nigeria and Niger being sold under an auction in 2017. I was very fortunate recently to be part of something called the Global Estimates of Modern Slavery. The Walk Free Foundation worked with the International Labour Organisation and the International Organisation for Migration. Um, I believe IOM is here today. What we did is try to work out, well, how often does this happen? We've got that one grainy video clip from Libya. How often does that happen? Our estimate is 40 million people. Take Australia's population and double it. That's kind of how many people we're seeing affected by this crime. Sorry, I'm really not very good at this. Within this idea of forced, um, uh, sorry, within this idea of modern slavery, I'm sure there's many lawyers here today, so you're very keen to know what the heck do I mean, where do these definitions come from. Um, there's two core definitions that we call on. One is the forced labour definition, which of course is in the Forced Labour uh, Convention from 1930, which Australia has ratified, you know, very many countries around the world have ratified. The other key definition we use is for actually forced marriage. Now, we felt very, very strongly it was important to have forced marriage included in this definition because if somebody has been given to another person, their sexual uh, autonomy has been taken away, they're used for work, and it just happens to be called marriage, I think it's pretty easy to see that that is, in fact, a form of modern-day slavery. Uh, and thank you to um, our speakers earlier this morning for raising the gender issues on this. So within the 40, 40 million people in modern-day slavery, we've got 25 in forced labour, 15 million in forced marriage. Having done the calculations and having done the research and having been involved in the data collection, I can tell you this is a very, very conservative estimate. We know, and I'm sure it's no surprise to anyone who's been in the audience today, 71% of people in modern slavery are women and girls. I mean, that's, that's just extraordinary. But we also see other gender uh, implications. What we see is those first two categories, domestic work, sex industry, that's where we see forced labour of women and girls. For men and boys, where we see forced labour is, is different. It's construction, manufacturing, agriculture. Uh, and also fishing is, a, is actually included in, in our category of agriculture. So, of course, how are these industries relevant to migration? Well, they're all primarily informal industries. They're the industries where first-generation migrants work, whether that's in Australia or whether that's in Europe 
or, or any country. They're the industries where um, internal migrants end up working. If you're in China and you're a man, you probably can get a job in Beijing in the construction sector. So we have these incredibly high-risk industries which are completely outside of the protection, not only of labour laws generally, but also any formal system of migration into those industries. Now, I said this was a, a very conservative estimate, and again, this is a group of lawyers, so um, I'm just going to draw out a few specific limitations. 40 million people in modern slavery doesn't cover child soldiers. There's a reason for that. It's not that we don't consider it important. It's not that we don't consider it part of this idea of modern-day slavery. It's just that the data is not strong enough. We also know that our data from the Arab states, from the Gulf states, is incredibly weak. Um, one of the ways we get our information is through surveys. Typically, in the Arab states, surveys are only permitted to be done in Arabic. Of course, if you survey an Arabic in Qatar, you'll talk to some Arabic-speaking people, but you won't speak to any Nepalese or any Ethiopians or, or any of the people who you actually want to attract in the labour camps. We also, um, our survey process is unable to cover institutionalised populations. So we don't cover labour camps. We don't cover refugee camps. Uh, we can't cover orphanages. So again, I think this sort of helps to underline how conservative these figures really are. Of course, with any, uh, any figures, the time you are allowed to be cynical is, you know, where did these numbers come from? You know, who made, who made them up? What's their basis? So the basis of these estimates at their heart, it's a long, complicated methodology, but at their heart is uh, 54 random sample, nationally representative surveys conducted in national languages, so more than 54 national languages, um, with more than 71,000 people. So that's the kind of core data set. And what we learn from those surveys is both yes and no's to answers about experiences of forced labour and forced marriage, but we also get these um, vignettes or these narratives where people tell us about their stories. They help us understand the issues better. And what we see is I think there's two main, two main categories that we see in these verbatims. One is about migration. Like these two here, I just picked them out randomly this morning. Completely different countries, they both happen to mention Italy. Don't know if anybody's been following Italy and Libya, but um, I would say Italy is probably single-handedly most responsible for what's going on in Libya right now out of any country globally. So we see from these vignettes the impact of migration and failed migration policy. We also see the impact of discrimination. And these things go hand in hand, because of course poor migration policy exacerbates discrimination. So, back to the topic at hand. What, what do we need to see in the UN Global Compact on Migration? I think it's going to be, in some ways, it's going to be easier to respond to this once we see the zero draft, which I think is not coming out until January. Um, anybody else who, who loves reading legal texts will be, you know, anxiously waiting for that to be uploaded somewhere so we can all pull it apart. Thinking about what I would like to see in it, from just from the perspective of those men in Libya, just from the perspective of forced uh, labour, forced marriage, I want to see a prevention-based approach. Let's maximise the benefits of migration. 
would be my starting point. We know that remittances are, what, $400 billion a year? So it's this massive economic opportunity. Um, I can't even imagine the amount of money we're spending on migration control at the moment. I think, Jane, you posted some statistics recently about um, X, X number on prevention and X number on protection, and it was quite staggering. So we have all the costs that come with border control. How can we reduce those costs by doing it, quite frankly, better and go from paper forms to, to Uber? We need to address the risk. Um, at the moment, uh, our international legal framework is very generously, I would describe it as a patchwork. Hello. <laughs> and thank you. We have this patchwork, um, perhaps a patchwork with holes in it, that con consists of, um, we've got the Convention on the Law of the Sea, okay, so that tells us about maritime boundaries. We've got um, human rights. Sometimes that applies, sometimes that doesn't apply to migrants, depending on which human right you're talking about. We've got the Refugee Convention, which applies to a subpopulation. We've got the Migrant Smuggling Protocol, which applies to migrant smuggling. We've got the Human Trafficking Protocol, that applies to human trafficking. It's, 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 all, it's all there, but it's bits and bobs. So we really need something to wrap all of that together and bring in um, a, a coherent sense of how do we actually comprehensively manage migration. At the moment, we see there's this huge protection gap between people who are considered victims of trafficking and people who are considered smuggled migrants. So those men in that video, you could call them either. They, could, they would fall under the definition of trafficking, they would fall under the definition of slavery, they would fall under the definition of smuggling. Uh, and depending on which definition you apply, it has huge implications for the sorts of um, treatment uh, that occurs to them. Are they a victim? or are they just a, an irregular migrant? So we need to fill that protection gap. For me, one of the things that really stands out is the need to recognise that migrants can be victims of crime. Yes, this can be being a victim of human trafficking, but it can also just be being a victim of theft or being a victim of fraud, being a victim of sexual violence. Um, any other number of sort of abuses, um, rent overcharging and a number of European countries have started to put in place laws that seek to address the vulnerability of migrants. Um, sleep merchants, for example, they're called in some European countries. Uh, boarding houses, we might call them, where rooming houses, where people are paying exorbitant rent to live in a room with 12 other people. So there's laws against that in some European countries. Finally, we have to, we have to look at, sorry, not finally, we also need to look at um, recruitment and placement systems. At the moment, um, you can have people paying two years wages, equivalent of which just to get a job. I, I was very fortunate to be involved in an audit team a couple of years ago doing an audit for a very major company in the Middle East. And the, what we found was that the workers in that organisation, which was a British company, British multinational, they had paid, some of them had paid two years wages at 60% interest. They had no chance of ever paying their recruitment fees back. How do we address the incoherence we see in our migration policy? Many of the anti-slavery, anti-trafficking responses in the world are driven by an immigration control. So, of course, if you mix that with, on the one hand, you've got this massive policy around migration and border control um, underpinned by a system of detention, and on the other hand, you've got this more protective narrow part of the system which is supposed to be focused on assisting victims, 
Victims are not going to report what's happened to, happened to them if they're going through that system and they fear they're going to be detained. And finally, what's the role of business? Uh, some of our colleagues are here today from DFAT and one of the really great initiatives we've seen in the last 12 months through the Bali process, which is an inter-regional uh, organisation focusing on trafficking and smuggling, has been bringing business leaders together to tell governments what they want to see on this issue. Governments are incredibly conservative. They think business doesn't want to take action on this issue. Business is saying, hang on a minute, we've got consumer-facing brands, we've got this incredible risk to our supply chains, and we need you to help. We can't do it by ourselves. So the takeaway there is, you know, let's be more creative about how we use some of these regional forums, some of these processes. How do we bring in business? But finally, um, just wrapping it up today, I'd just like to encourage you to please be positive. Uh, this is a once-in-a-generation opportunity, I think, the opportunity for this um, compact on migration, and I know that I'm going to be giving it a red-hot go, and I hope you all are too. Thank you. <laughs>